Hello and welcome. This is the Yoga Revolution podcast. My name is Jeevana Heyman. My pronouns are he and him. This podcast is an exploration of how we can live yoga right now and how we can apply the yoga teachings in our lives. We'll discuss the intersection of yoga and social justice, as well as how to build a practice that supports our activism. All my guests are contributors to my new book, Yoga Revolution, Building a Practice of Courage and Compassion. Thanks so much for joining me. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Um, welcome to our very first episode with another person. I'm here today with my friend uh, Kelly Palmer, and I'm so excited about it. So I wanted to tell you a bit about Kelly. Um, Kelly is a queer, Black, creative, and community advocate based in Charlotte, North Carolina. Kelly uses the practices and philosophy of yoga to guide her work in creating equitable and sustainable access to wellness for BIPOC. Along with teaching movement, meditation, and contemplative practices, Kelly leads retreats, hosts workshops, and contributes to multiple teacher training programs. Kelly also works as a race equity educator, working to create collaborative learning and self-study spaces where inquiry-based learning brings new perspectives, insights, and action. Kelly's a writer and collage artist, yay, focusing that work on Black liberation, wholeness, and healing. Kelly serves as a founding member of the Sanctuary in the City, a Charlotte-based nonprofit that focuses on equitable healing spaces for BIPOC all over the world. Kelly also serves as a trainer for the Accessible Yoga Training School. Um, and you can learn more about her at kellynicolepalmer.com. Hey, Kelly. Hey, Juvena. It's great to be with you today. Thanks so much for joining me. I always love when we get a chance to sit down and talk. Me too. That's why you're my first guest. And <laughs> not just that, you also wrote the forward to my book, which is what this whole yeah. podcast series is based on. So this, this series is based on Yoga Revolution. And I was so excited that you agreed to write the forward. And it's really, really sweet and beautiful. So um, actually, this episode will come out before the book is even out. So I think we could oh, talk okay. about that a little bit. Okay, um, wonderful. I'm super honored that you asked me. I was like, a little bit nervous when you asked me like, oh, wow, Jivana wants me to write the forward. <laughs> and um, I loved reading the book. I can't wait for other people to get a chance to read it. I'm always um, super grateful and inspired for the ways that you do the work you do and mm. the ways that you, um, I can just say for me, like you get into a room and then you like bring everybody in with you and that, um, Hmm. is rare often, even within wellness spaces of like people who really care about being in collaboration and aren't trying to hoard resources. And so I appreciate you. Hmm. Thank you. That's so sweet. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you too, which is why I got, I, I asked you to write the forward and, but I should say that we worked together for, for many years and, you know, you worked with me in accessible yoga and I just knew that's why I knew you were the person I wanted, wanted to write that forward. Like I just saw, you know, I read so much of your writing. You, you did a lot of writing for accessible yoga and I just felt like people need to hear your voice. You, you, have, it. you have a way of expressing yourself. That's very clear and, and not just clear the word. I don't want to say brave, but 
would you're you're not you're not shy you're not afraid of hurting people's feelings you just say it like it is but i also feel like you're not you're not holding anger either it's like somehow you have this way about you that i find just so compelling of just speaking clearly and i appreciate you know, that Davina. I yeah, think I all my teachers who wrote on. talks too much, you know, I had a plenty of um, <laughs> unnecessary talking marks. I think every single report card I had had a had a, like the much. lowest score on unnecessary talking. But who's to say what was necessary or unnecessary in those spaces? I also, mm. though, um, I appreciate what you said about anger. It's not something I talk about a lot, but in my early 20s, I was in like weekly therapy for anger management. And I think about that a lot when we're doing this like equity and accessibility work, because the world makes me angry. We talk about it personally all the time, Jivana, yeah. like the humans and their humaning. It just drives me literally mad. <laughs> and I, and I, I honor that anger, right? It's righteous anger. Like humans should be able to exist and thrive outside of these systems that we're all in. And I see how these systems are literally killing people, like physically killing people and energetically, like stealing people's mm. hope and their joy and their peace. And I'm grateful to the yoga practice because it, I don't know, it gave me the tools to transmute that anger into, into action instead of letting that anger destroy me, um, which was something I struggled with. Uh, I hate to admit it, like almost 20 years ago, because I'm 40. But yeah, around the ages of like 19 or 20, I actually um, was in a like a road rage situation. And mm. I didn't get arrested or anything. But it just made me, it woke me up to the fact that I needed to deal with my anger in a mm. way that wasn't going to cause harm. And I think about that all the time. But particularly when you just said, it doesn't feel like I'm angry. I do hold the anger. You know, I hold this space of, I can be angry and joyful and hopeful and hopeless and sad and happy. Like I'm, I'm a complex being with all of those feelings moving in and out. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. I, I had a similar experience with anger because, you know, during the AIDS epidemic, I was so angry and I was involved with, you know, direct action through ACT UP and demonstrating and screaming and yelling for years and years. And yeah, I mean, yoga helped me. It's not, it, I still have a lot of anger too, but I definitely feel like um, yoga helped me find a way to, to change it into action, which is what you just said. So, so exactly like turning anger into service or doing something action. And so it doesn't just sit in us yeah. and fester, but actually becomes motivation yeah. Because uh, really, uh, anger is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just right. I think it, I think it can be, um, it can like be a poison for us if we don't if we just hold it. You know, just seething. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think about something that my grandpa used to say to me. Um, we used to talk on the phone every day since I was a small kid. And my freshman mm. year of college, I was holding a lot of anger about different things and. It was actually the last year of my grandfather's life. I didn't know it at the time, but he would say to me, like, and it's a quote that I'm sure other people have heard, like, the people you're mad at, they either don't know or they don't care. Mm. And so what are you going to do with it? Mm. Um, and I um, 
actually am like in the process of writing a, a book myself and um, pretty much talking about like realizing that my grandfather was really my first yoga teacher, mm-hmm. um, even though he might not have had that language, just around the power that I could have if I were in my body and able to observe the feelings that I was having to make a decision about what I would do with those feelings. And, mm-hmm. you know, even in talking about anger, I I appreciate yoga, not just for teaching me how to like transmute anger into action, but also how to sit with it and observe it and not let it devour me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I try to address that a bit in the book talking about, you know, how, like you just said, that yoga doesn't take away, doesn't always take away these issues for us. Like that's maybe, I mean, that's bypassing. Like we can use yoga that way to like deny our feelings and avoid them and try to get to the positive feelings all the time. But, but, but yoga can make us stronger so that we can be with our feelings. And I think that's a very different thing, you know, to be able to like, like you said, sit with it. Um, that's an amazing skill. I mean, it doesn't always work, but sometimes yoga gives me that skill to be with my feelings instead of pushing them away or changing fo- changing my focus to something just to distract me, um, which is what my mind likes to do, to get distracted. Right. right. Um, I know in, your, in the forward to the book, you wrote about how you got into yoga. I mean, you mentioned your grandfather, but then you, get, you tell a story. I don't know if you can share that about. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the very first time I went to yoga, I was in like a level two vinyasa class, but I didn't know. I didn't know uh-huh. what any of that meant. I just knew that I was in a bigger body and the trainer I was working with told me that I could do yoga and burn calories. And so I went to yoga and yeah. um, I left the class. The teacher, I left right before Shavasana. I don't think the teacher really knew what to do with the body that I was in. Um, and for a long time, I carried anger towards that teacher after I became a yoga teacher, because I couldn't imagine allowing someone mm. to come in and not take care of them and not mm. like offer support for them in the space. Um, I've since released that anger because I've recognized, you know, in supporting teacher trainings and working with you in accessible yoga, that while there are people who blatantly don't care about making their spaces accessible, most people don't know what they don't know and they're doing the best that they can with the tools they've been given. And so it's like, I can have compassion for that teacher. Um, but I also mm-hmm. feel grateful because after that, I did um, develop a long student teacher relationship with the person I ultimately took teacher training from. And there were a black woman in a bigger body and they made the practice and the philosophy accessible to me Um And yeah, over and over, I've been able to find teachers. I consider you a teacher, Amber a teacher, Keisha Battles, Jay Miles, Mm -hmm. uh, Maya Brewer, uh, Dr. Gail Parker, Octavia Rahim, like all of these people, Tia Camille, teachers in my life who have repeatedly offered space for me to grow my understanding of this practice. And lot, grow lot, my, can I say lots of those people are going to be guests on this podcast? And I hope so. They're the amazing yeah. teachers. They're amazing <laughs> teachers. So I hope so. Yes. Um, well, like Amber and Jay Miles and Octavia. Yeah. I think those are the ones I have who you mentioned. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, no, but 
I, I think that, um, you know, I, I started like regularly practicing in private. So it was just myself and my teacher. And at the time I owned a hair salon. So we were making our staff take yoga. And so, <laughs> um, but I'm the only one, it was my business partner who actually wanted to take the classes. And I kind of was like, okay, like I'll go along with it. Like I can burn calories. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> but I, in the end, I was the one who stayed and was taking mm. the privates on my own. And, you know, mm. I, I've been a teacher or I finished a YTT program over seven years ago. Um, and I can kind of track that because I was pregnant with the, my oldest child mm. when I was in mm-hmm. teacher training the very first weekend, I was like eight and a half months pregnant. But, um, I don't know, this path of teaching yoga has opened up the space for me to be involved in activism and direct action and also just like the movement for black wellness in a way that I couldn't have pictured when I first decided to lean in to yoga. Um, And I think what makes me often feel hopeful around like doing race equity work, supporting accessible yoga trainings and like other like Uh, you know, inquiry-based, action-motivated spaces. I think what gives me hope is that this practice does hold the space for people to really look at themselves. And at least from my perspective, our like greater change doesn't come without individual change. And if it's going to be found anywhere, I feel like that change could be found here in this practice. That's really what keeps me coming back to the work um, because I don't always want to stay involved in like wellness spaces and yeah. education in those spaces. It can be exhausting in some ways. Can you say more about how, how that works? Like what is that connection yeah. for you? Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, I feel fortunate to have a lot of teachers around me just in the race and equity space, not all of them in wellness. And we all collectively sometimes talk about, Like, what would be better use of our energy? (laughs) What would bring more joy to our lives? Because it can sometimes feel like, you know, uh, I could teach 500 people that are yoga teachers, race and equity, and there's still tens of thousands of others who are perpetuating Mm -hmm. harm maliciously and unknowingly. And like, I'll never be able to teach everybody. Even if all the race and equity and, um, you know, inclusivity educators within yoga and wellness banded together, we won't be able to reach or shift everyone. And that can Mm. feel like, well, maybe I should just collage and paint and make food and Mm. (laughs) skip on the beach. And I do do those things (laughs) all the time. Skip on the beach. I like that one. Right. (laughs) I love skipping on the beach. Skipping is... More adults should have a skipping practice. If it is accessible in your body, you should have a skipping practice because it just, mm-hmm. you can't be in a bad mood and skip, but that's a whole nother podcast. But <laughs> um, okay. I, it, it's a, an instant mood booster to skip or frolic um, about in a natural space. But um, also like, you know, last year we partnered and I taught the first online sessions of a race and equity workshop that I, that I lead with our school. And, you know, there were over 200 people signed up for that offering. And 
I didn't realize it then, but I needed that space because we were also in the middle of, you know, a pandemic, a global pandemic that was killing people all over the world, is killing people all over the world. And we were seeing the largest like mass demonstration in a long time for the safety of black folks in the US under police rule. And mm. um, I'm a black person. So what I teach about is not just like ideation. This is about my actual existence and survival. And that space was really restorative because the folks who decided to take it they were serious and they really leaned in and we had a lot of really rich conversations and I'm still in community with a lot of those mm. people around the work that they're doing in their personal lives, but also in the ways that they're offering wellness so that they are valuing the lives of black folks and indigenous folks and other people of color and not centering whiteness as a standard and model um, for how to do business or for how to run a salon, I mean a studio or how to offer mm. classes and that gives me a lot of hope. So, um, you know, but, you know, I can go into yeah. another space two weeks later and have to argue with people that white supremacy is real. So yeah. <laughs> there's this balance, right? This balance what, what do you, what do you say? Like, I don't know if you could summarize in your thinking that relationship between yoga and social justice. Um, right. How would you describe that? Well, you know, I think that social justice is something on its own, right? It's, this decision to be an advocate, to be an activist, to be a disruptor. And I think that anyone's capable of that. And I think that we can't really even imagine a different way if we haven't sat with ourselves and released the story dominant culture created for us mm. about who we are, about how we have to live, who we have to value, how we have to work. And so, you know, yoga has so many tools available for self-study, for reflection, for withdrawing from the senses to get really clear about what it is you're saying to yourself, what it is you're saying about others, what you're thinking and feeling about the natural world around you. And I often, you know, more regularly see people say that, social justice and yoga are not the same thing. And I don't really have a, I don't know. I don't really, I don't, I don't have a space to say like, well, you're wrong to say that. But I do wonder yeah. if those folks are considering the real purpose, the real reason why they engage this practice and whether they want to admit it or not, they were seeking something. And the thing that they were seeking will always be out of reach as long as others are suffering. And so mm -hmm. these two things are very much interconnected, even for the space of people who really want to do something. If you are not clear about the ways that you uphold harm, the ways that you uphold oppression, even mm -hmm. in your helping and your charity and your so-called solidarity, you will bring these patterns of white supremacy, of oppression, into your help and eventually and inevitably cause more harm. And mm -hmm. so, you know, social justice to me is about embodying the inherent value of every part of this existence, the people, the land, the water, the air, the energy we're all sharing, 
but you can't mm-hmm. do that if you haven't pulled about part the stories that allowed you to undervalue those things in the first place. Yeah, you I love that. you can't yeah. do those two things separately, and it makes me sad that people mm-hmm. want to be proprietary about what yoga is and what yoga isn't mm-hmm. in terms of trying to make it as if you don't have an obligation to the other people and the other things yeah. that are a part of your existence. You do. And to me, the practice highlights that over and over and over again in so many different ways. But what I also sit with when I see people say like, social justice has no place in yoga, or these two things are not connected, or these two things are not the same. What comes up for me is like, what is the power of privilege that you're afraid you're going to have to investigate and ultimately release to be who it is you say you are? Mm. Yeah, it seems like people confuse, maybe maybe they're confused about what social justice means, you know, and they, they right. think of it as politics and like, yeah. you know, or as something, yeah, like politics is related to social justice, but it's not exactly the same thing. And I think you just said it so beautifully. It's just more about, the connection with everything and everyone like that's that's you know that kind of equity in the world yeah. is how what i think of as social justice like yeah. everyone having equal access and equal yeah. rights yeah um, i mean you know sometimes people when people say to me like i don't want everything to be so political i'm like well you don't actually have that option because we're all living <laughs> in a very highly politicized environment and yeah. Being in right relationship with everything around you is not political. It's very personal. It's very metaphysical. It's very spiritual. And there are places and spaces where they've tried to politicize that. Mm. But the work is to dismantle that thinking that -hmm. there is no separation between Mm -hmm. you, a white gay man, and me, a black queer woman. Yeah, we are experiencing similar things and different things. Mm-hmm. We're being impacted differently in our lived experience. And if you aren't doing everything to make sure I thrive and I'm not doing everything to make sure you thrive, we won't thrive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I talk about it a lot in race and equity, but folks who sit closer to dominant culture have a bigger responsibility to caretake the thriving of others. And it's because even though you're being impacted, even though you also are being asked to segment and dismember your being in this system, you still have access to things other people don't have. And that's the part that infuriates me, Divina. Like (laughs) you're, you know what I'm saying? You're living in a house with internet, with electricity, with water, with food, with everything you need, trying to tell other people that they cannot use the tools of this practice to shift change because Mm. they literally don't have a place to live, food to eat, Mm. access to medical care, Mm. access to community care. They're afraid to exist. You're telling these people they can't use this practice to make it at least bearable that's more privilege and power as far as I'm concerned. And Mm -hmm. I'm only interested in what can we release? What can we do to make it equitable? What are the stories that we're each holding that still make this system so viable? Yeah. And, and my answer is always like, you need to sit in some self-study. You need to practice being with discomfort. You need to practice releasing the illusion that you have about your value. Because as long as other people are 
treated as dispensable, you mm. also sit in line to be treated that way one day because you're mm. old, because you've gotten fat, because you're mm. navigating illness, because you lost your job, because you don't look a certain way, because your skin is not the right color, because your religion is not the right. You know what I mean? Like we're all up to be on the outside at some point. Um, so why don't we all just remove the boundary of inside and outside? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's really, I mean, you said it so beautifully, oh, Kelly, you're amazing. But like, I, I feel like you. that was really the point of my book, like that that idea of the inner inner revolution and outer revolution, really looking to explore, like, what is that relationship between our inner spiritual work and our outward lived experience and the way we act in the world like there is a relationship there and i feel like there is this kind of traditional or even i would say classical approach to yoga teachings where you become a monk and you leave the world you you go you don't have relationships um you go live in an ashram or by yourself somewhere and you just focus on spiritual teachings but it's funny because i lived at ashrams and worked in them and they are as intense, if not more intense than family life. Like you can't, you can't run away from the world. It's really not possible. But the fact is most yoga students or practitioners haven't, like we're not even trying to be monks. We're householders and we live in the world and we're participating in this, you know, in this community. And so to act like this spiritual practice is somehow divorced from that is to keep it is to minimize it actually, and to not allow it to be as powerful and profound as it really is um, to transform the way we see the world and how we act. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I had hoped (laughs) that the last 18 months Mm. would be a bigger wake up call for particularly this wellness yoga community Mm. simply because the amount of loss and grief was indiscriminate, right? Not to say that people with under-resourced or um, under-estimated identities didn't bear the brunt of it because we did. But it's like, I know just as many white folks or people who were financially doing well, who really struggled for various reasons through this 18 months and I feel fortunate through you and other folks that I got to be in a lot of virtual spaces to really talk about what it could look like for us to be intentional and focused in dismantling these systems. And while I know that there are lots of people who took that work seriously and are carrying it forward for themselves, I can't help but feel disheartened by the way that I see folks not only willing, but rushing back to what was considered normal and right before with all that they saw, experienced and knew. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a yoga teacher and also I made the decision that I'm not teaching in person in 2021. And it's been disappointing to navigate people being disappointed in me for making that choice. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) when, when I know that while in the United States, we are in a mad dash to business as usual, the rest of the world is still grappling with 
unexplained and unnecessary death tolls and people mm -hmm. are still dying here. Yes. And so I just, you know, it's not without, you know, we were talking just before this, it isn't easy for a person who works for themselves to turn down paying work at the tail end of a pandemic that canceled most of their work. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I'm not willing to go back to being paid $14 an hour to teach yoga. I'm not willing yeah. to go back to teaching in spaces that are overcharging people for a metaphysical practice. And I'm personally not at the point where I wish to monetize spiritual practices while so many people are still experiencing loss and grief mm. and mm. devastation for lack of a better word, um, as if it's not like, as if it's just over, like it's, it's not over. It's, it's not over people. It's going to take some mm. people 10 or 15 years to financially recover from mm. the last 18 months. And, you know, I, I've been a little snarky online around like, I was waiting for the revolution and everybody wants to go back to brunch. And I'm just <laughs> like, but I mean yeah. that. <laughs> like, yeah. and, and we can have brunch and we can revolutionize things at the same time, but it doesn't feel, <laughs> it doesn't feel good to see people just ready to forget everything we talked about, everything we were mm. trying to cultivate in the last 18 months. And you know, it reminds me to practice non-attachment, hmm. to have right use of my energy, brahmacharya, you know, of like, I can't be arguing with people on the internet and also trying to raise money for mutual aid to make sure that Black and Indigenous people of color can pay their bills. So let me use my energy in the right way. You know what I'm saying? I can't, mm -hmm. I can't um, continue to teach in spaces that are hostile when there are plenty of spaces where people are excited about and longing for work that asks them to question how they're existing within systems of oppression. And so, you know, prioritizing that and then also just prioritizing my own joy and care and, you know, yeah. reading good books like yours. Um, <laughs> I just was digging around in your first book, um, Accessible mm -hmm. Yoga, like two days ago, um, trying to offer some tools to my mom who's navigating some health mm. challenges and mm. you know I all that to say like I'm mm. holding that the change that is necessary is on its way and I won't see it yeah. in my lifetime and that's being shown to me all the time and I need to be okay with that yeah that's disappointing but yeah can you think like if you can you think of like one thing that people can do to engage with yoga in this way in their lives is it through self-study is that what you're suggesting i mean is that and is that what your new book is about i'm just curious i know you've already written yeah. a book you've written two books haven't yes. you and yes I have. Mm -hmm. and i just re-released the um in july i just re-released a revised edition where i merged the it was a book of mantras and readings and then I had a book of like self-study practices and questions and I okay. merged them together to mm. just offer some grounding but offer also like give my space give myself space to be more expansive around the ideas I initially shared mm -hmm. and be more deliberate in the language of like a self-study practice not only grounds you and fortifies you but I've learned in my own life in the past four and really seven years 
that a self-study practice liberates me from the story that dominant culture is telling me about myself and the world around me. And so, yeah, I don't really care if you can do a handstand, if you can do all the chaturangas, <laughs> if you speak Sanskrit so perfectly, that doesn't mm -hmm. matter to me. Um, I just was saying this to my children, actually. Kindness will always be more important than knowledge. And, you know, mm -hmm. I was simplifying for them because they're ages seven and five, but it still feels true to me. Like if your practice is not rooted in dismantling systems of oppression, for me, you don't have a practice. If, you're, if your practice is not rooted in figuring out how you're contributing and then working on unlearning and repatterning your actions around money, your actions around work and productivity, the ways that you make people prove that they deserve to have their basic needs met. Like those are things to be looking at continually because dominant culture is continually shoving a oppressive story down your throat. And so can you sit with that work? Can you mm -hmm. breathe through that work? Um, and maybe you can do it while you do chaturangas, right? <laughs> and also, can you do it in where you're spending your money? Can you do it in where you're choosing to make a home? Can you do it in who you're centering as an expert? Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm gonna. Yeah, so I'm always gonna rally for people to do their self study around systems and how they are participating in them. I mean, it seems like the chaturanga is a good place to start, but only if you keep going. And it seems like many people just stop there. You know, we just yeah. we get so caught up in the physical, um, yeah, and we lose we lose track of the other part, this self analysis, which is really the essence of yoga actually of really learning to to be reflective uh, and see the way that your mind works is really what the teachings are yeah. all about um yeah. well do you have any final and, thoughts I, I we should probably wrap it up and i want i just wanted yeah. to give you a chance to share any other sage advice around this um i mean i i want to just remind people that dominant culture is feeding us a story right about what is what makes us valuable and that feeds the story about what makes other people and other things valuable and i just want to invite people to step back from that story um, to really pull it apart and to really think about like are you existing in a way that allows you to fully thrive and are you existing in a way that allows everyone else and everything else around you to thrive? And I'm already going to tell you the answer is no, you're not. Because if we all were, we would mm. be having a very different experience in this lifetime. And I think the work of unlearning is hard, but I want to ask people to not give up, to actually trust their ability to withstand the discomfort of releasing these stories and these ways of being. It's hard mm. work, I know, because I'm doing it also. Mm. And I can't even fully articulate the level of equanimity that comes from doing the work, even when it's hard, even when you lose things that are important to you, even when you have to question your entire existence <laughs> it's mm. on the other side of it is clarity and action that becomes easy yeah mm. that's beautiful thank you yeah and i thank you kind of scary it's kind of scary but i you said it, in the, it you is. said it in such a beautiful way it yeah. feels less scary 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I really want to give credit to Octavia Rahim. She released a book last year, um, Gather. Mm-hmm. And there's a passage in there. She has, you know, several like passages in there and I'm sure you'll have her on to talk, but there's yes. a passage in there called I am held. And yeah. um, at the end of it, it's talking about like what happens when you release all of this, all of this stuff that's not even yours and how scary that weightlessness is. Mm. But like the knowing that past selves, future selves, they're holding your hand as a compass mm. and a guide. It's exactly what Octavia says. And I don't know, those words have really, thank you, Octavia, because those mm. words have really grounded me and fortified me through the last 18 months in a way that mm. I hadn't anticipated. Um, mm. Yeah. Wow, yeah. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. And people can find you, um, Kelly Nicole Palmer, Kelly with an E, like K-E-L-L-E-Y. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, Kelly Nicole and you have your a book out manifest and yep. what else how else can people find you? um those are the ways oh in, I use Instagram sometimes um, which is funny because yes. I used to be the communications manager I don't mm-hmm. really like social media that much anymore. <laughs> um, not because of that just yeah you know in an unlearning place around it but yeah I'm on Instagram I am Kelly Nicole K-E-L-L-E-Y Nicole, N-I-C-O-L-E. Um, those are great ways to connect. And, um, you know, I have more workshops coming with Accessible Yoga, helping mm-hmm. out with the training that y'all have online. Um, but really, I'm just taking it easy and making art and homeschooling and being loved on and loving on people um, mm-hmm. in real time in the ways that I can safely while we're still in a pandemic. So, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks for Thanks for joining me and for everything you do. Always so great talking to you. I'm sure I'll talk to you soon. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you all for listening. All right, take care. Peace. Thanks so much for listening and joining the conversation. Yoga is truly a revolutionary practice. Thanks for being here. If you haven't already, I would love for you to read my book, Yoga Revolution, Building a Practice of Courage and Compassion. It's available wherever books are sold. Also, you can check out my website, jivanaheyman.com. There's some free classes on there and a meditation. And you can find out more about my upcoming trainings and other programs. Hope to see you next time. Thanks. Bye.